0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, June 28th, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we're going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Jacob Hall. Uh, hello, hello. Jacob, how's it going? Uh, h- how are you? I'm
2: tired and dealing with back injury and feeling very old for somebody who should not feel old, but you
0: know, here we are. Yes. Yes, indeed. Okay. So you and I have not really been doing much recently. We've got the Fourth of July holiday coming up, so maybe we'll, you know, actually actually do something then. But uh, tell me what you've been reading recently.
2: Yeah, I just finished Two Truths and a Lie by Ellen McGarrahan. Uh, when you look at this one, make sure you find Ellen McGarrahan because there are so many books called Two Truths and a Lie. Uh, you want to find Ellen McGarrahan. Uh, ben, this is a book about a a young journalist who witnesses a botched execution and leaves the profession and moves to the West Coast, becomes a construction worker to try to put aside the pain and the trauma of having witnessed a man die in an electric chair over seven arduous minutes, only to stumble into being a private detective and re- revisit the case 20 years later to try to discover the truth that would happen to this guy and his crime. And it's all a memoir. It's all nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. I was going to say, I mean, this can't possibly be real, but, uh, uh yeah, it is. Uh, it, it's a, it's a combination of memoir and true crime story is El McGarahan, uh, a now seasoned PI, uh, returns to Florida where, uh, where this criminal was, uh, executed and where he, where he, uh, was tried and convicted of murdering two police officers. And tries to pick up the pieces, to figure out what happened. Was he guilty? You know what led to this. And she uncovers um, not a vast criminal conspiracy because that would involve people who are competent and you know and knew what they were doing. But invo- but definitely uncovers lots of stuff that was missed in the 1970s when the case was tried. Uh, it is riveting. I w- I read this maybe two sittings. I could not put it down. It is one of the best pieces of true
0: crime I think I've read in a long time. Man, all right, awesome. So yeah, you can check the spelling in the show notes uh, to make sure that you get the correct version of Two Truths and a Lie. Um, but that's not the only thing you've been reading, Jacob.
2: Yeah, uh, a few weeks ago, I, told, I talked about reading Under the Banner of Heaven, the another true crime book uh, about the, the 1980s uh, m- murder case where several Mormon fundamentalists uh, committed a vicious crime. And while reading that, there was a footnote about one of uh, Joseph Smith's uh, most ardent followers who tried to take control of the Mormon church after he died in the 1800s. And I thought that footnote sounds very familiar. And it's because it's it's the entire subject of The King of Confidence by Miles Harvey, a book I had bought at the time but not read yet. And this book is very much uh, about con men and about the antebellum uh, age of America, which is described as being literally... the. The Wild West before the Wild West, Ben. I mean, uh, the, the 1830s to the 1850s in the United States was so full of people making up religions, so full of con men, so full of business people trying to start anew, so full of chaos that <clears throat> European journalists and writers, from Charles Dickens to like actual like respected writers uh, beyond him, uh, would travel to the United States just to tour like, what would eventually become the Midwest to try to document how bizarre it was. And one of these bizarre people was this this con man who uh, infiltrated the Mormon church as part of an attempt to uh, sell them land uh, (laughs) and make a profit uh, off of it uh, as part of a long con only to realize that he could possibly find exactly what he wanted by embracing religion in that he wanted to become America's Napoleon and wanted to uh, become king of the United States and build a utopia. Uh, So naturally uh, he tries to take control of the Mormon church builds his own following uh, buys a private Island declares himself King and eventually gets assassinated um, <laughs> all the course of a number of years uh, uh, all, all the while it is one of the, a truly deranged story of, of a true American type, which is the con man. No one should believe what they believe anyway. And that's a King of Confidence by Miles Harvey. I'm not done with it yet, but it's extremely entertaining
0: and, uh,
2: very prescient about a very, very specific type of American person.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> opportunists and grifters. Who would have thought that uh, that those characters or, or those archetypes would become <laughs> major figures in American history? Uh, anyone who has ever read a book is the answer. Um, Jacob, <laughs> it's it's really interesting that uh, that I mean that's like super convenient for you to be reading a book, find something in a footnote, and be like, ah. <laughs> I just have to go over to my bookshelf and pull out an entire other book that, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, expounds on this topic further. I can just like go down a rabbit hole without leaving my living room. That's awesome.
2: Yeah, I'm currently in the middle of boxing up books because I'm planning to move to a new house later this year. You know, um, you know, unless the world burns down first, and uh, I just increasingly aware that I have way too e-books, uh, but like I can't <laughs> part with them because because like, I, I don't want them to be a situation like man. I used to have a book on this subject, now it's gone. I can't sell that book. Like the idea that I could, I have so many unread books about subjects where I can literally go, oh yeah, I have that already. Uh, is a really <laughs> good feeling, even though it means having to pack and carry lots and lots of cardboard boxes full of very heavy books.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. My wife and I are um, are building our own bookshelves like from scratch, basically, and. Uh, It's been a a very slow process where we'll like, you know, work on it for successive weekends and then like take a month off. And anyway, our books have been just like sprawled throughout the the upstairs of our house, like uh, littered throughout a a guest room that we don't use very much right now. Um, It's just like a book repository. Um, And yeah, seeing it all sort of laid out that way. Uh, you would think that it would make us stop buying books because we haven't read, you know, half of the stuff that we have yet, but we have that same uh, bug that you do where it's just like, you know, every time we go to a bookstore, we just come out with like a stack of stuff and we'll probably never be able to read all the things that we already have, let alone, you know, all these new editions. But, uh, you know, the, the temptation is too great. So, um, okay, let's get into what we've been watching. What have you been watching, Jacob? Uh, I...
2: I... I'm pretty sure I had not seen it when I was last in the podcast, uh, but I, I saw, I'll talk about it again if I have, which I saw Top Gun Maverick twice over the course of two weeks. I I could have seen new movies. I could have made the choice to go, you know, take a risk on something or even go see Jurassic World Dominion, which I, after Fallen Kingdom, I just, I can't, I just can't. Yeah. But I paid to see Top Gun Maverick in theaters twice because it's hard for me to imagine a a more successful film doing what this movie does i uh it is just very traditional classic hollywood filmmaking i mean so often hollywood films are slapdash and assemble without care but there's a reason why hollywood set the standard for so many years because the idea of what a hollywood movie is a crowd-pleasing mass market thing that's also put together and assembled with care by people who clearly give a shit Mm -hmm. that's Sometimes uncommon these days, unfortunately, and Top Gun Maverick, despite being a movie that, you know, is so modern in its technology, uh, it can't help but feel like a throwback. And i say to somebody who does not like Top Gun, the original Top Gun. I rewatched it before I watched this one. It, I've never really cared for it. I find it kind of boring. I find its politics be kind of repulsive. Uh, and yet, and yet, Tom Gun <laughs> Maverick won me over twice in a row, and I've been tempted to go see it a third time. I, I can't justify that because I, I need to catch up on other things. But I think Top Gun Maverick is so good. It's and I and the fact, that it's a billion dollar movie, the highest grossing movie of the year so far. I know it's a sequel. It's a Tom Cruise movie. You know, we should uh, we should, we couldn't should be celebrating other things, but just, but knowing that a movie made with such care and craft is doing so well critically and commercially, uh, it, it it's good news all around for movie theaters.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like, it's really encouraging to see when a good movie performs well. Like, of course, Jurassic World Dominion is going to make a lot of money, but it's like, there's something lazy about that. Uh, And and you could feel it when you're watching the movie. And there's nothing lazy about Top Gun Maverick. Like, it, it really feels like Tom Cruise knew that this this was like a key role that he is associated with. And he was going to wait, you know, whatever, 30 plus years to make sure that, you know, that when he finally did get around to telling the story, it was going to be done uh, in the quote unquote right way. And it, it really paid off like that. That sort of that care that you're talking about is really infused all the way throughout it. Did you happen to see um, Spiderhead, the, uh, the Netflix movie from the same director, Joseph Kaczynski?
2: I have not yet, and I, I, it's entirely my fault. I've I, i've developed a new knee-jerk reaction to Netflix original movies. So many of them are, are so bad that I've, I stopped treating them as priorities. And Joseph Kaczynski, after Top Gun Maverick, really should have me watching it. But it's still that knee-jerk thing, and I, I, I feel really bad for that.
0: Well, I was going to talk about it later, but since we're talking about Top Gun and everything now, I mean, the the bad part about Spiderhead is that that same level of care, even though it's the same director, is not in Spiderhead. It, it really does suffer a little bit from that Netflix, whatever you want to call that, that sort of like fuzz that that is attached to all Netflix projects where it sort of feels like man, this just isn't quite, this hasn't been baked quite long enough. It's been pulled out of the oven a little bit too early. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's got a good cast. Chris Hemsworth, Miles Teller, um, Journey Smollett. I mean, you know, th- th- these are people that I enjoy watching in the right circumstances. Um, Chris Hemsworth is playing a, I guess like a, uh, sort of a tech bro villain. And it's a little bit like, um, like uh, Oscar Isaac and Ex Machina, that's kind of sort of like the same ballpark. And so, you know, he's like dancing around and being, you know, kind of like devilishly evil here and there. And, you know, that stuff is like entertaining to watch, but, and the performances all around, I mean, you know, Teller and and Smollett are are pretty good as well, but like, there's just something about the, um, the undercookedness of the movie that, that you can feel like it just doesn't, ever like, uh, shift to that, that gear that a movie like this needs to hit. And, you know, Kaczynski, like Top Gun Maverick, it's, is such a slick stylized movie. I mean, it's very different from the style of Tony Scott, but it, it has a style to it. And Spiderhead, I mean, as much as I kind of hate to say it, like it, it feels uh, it feels a little sleek, I guess, but in, in like the aesthetics of it, like the um, the production design, which is something that that has been sort of a calling card of Kasinski's career thus far. But a lot of the movie just kind of feels um, like anybody could have made it, you know. And and uh, it, there, there's like a an, an anonymity. Uh, that just feels a little depressing to watch it. Like, this is a movie that's written by Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick, who have written like the Deadpool movies and Zombieland and, you know, are are some like high-profile screenwriters in Hollywood. And it just kind of feels anonymous on the page as well. It's based on a George Saunders story. Um, so you know, you would think that there would be, I don't know, a little bit more snappiness to something like this, but it just kind of feels uh, like okay, well, th- there it is. There's another l- thing on the Netflix, um, you know, algorithm, uh, line basically that's just being uh fed to you that you can either pick up or just ignore, and nobody's going to be talking about it. So, um, as much as I hate to say it, Jacob, but like I don't really think you're missing that much uh with Spiderhead. But um,
2: that's a real shame because I. I- I do not like *Troll Legacy, but I really like Oblivion, Kaczynski's second movie. Mm-hmm. I'm like one of the very few, apparently. And I, was, and I was, I'm kind of excited to eventually check out Only the Brave, his movie came a few years ago that kind of didn't get much traction which people seem to really like. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just waiting for I'm, I'm prepared to think Kaczynski's a great filmmaker. I, I think I, I I but apparently this I'm not sure if it's script quality or these people like Tom Cruise Kristen McQuarrie, who are going to, you know, you know, provide the support system he needs i I don't know um there's clearly clearly a great filmmaker in there though
0: yeah and and i you know i may be being slightly unfair to this movie because it is a covid production and like part of my sort of personal qualms with it are that it feels a little too small for what this story could be and i'm I'm sure they were um you know it's always like uh partially a little silly for us to be like looking at this stuff from an outsider perspective and being like, ah, I don't know. And and sort of casting judgment without, without knowing exactly what kind of um, uh, circumstances they had to deal with, like on the actual sets of of these things. And this is one of those movies that where you kind of, or I kind of feel like the restrictions that they must've had um, impacted the movie in a way that uh, maybe feels a little bit more tangible than, you know, some of the other projects that were uh, it's not quite as, um, as obvious that that people were dealing with certain restrictions and things like that so anyway it's spiderhead it's on netflix if you want to watch it uh but um yeah i, I was underwhelmed by it a little bit but uh jacob tell me what else you've been watching
2: i've been watching three season threes uh which one do to hear about first ben
0: i'm looking at the list here uh for all mankind tell me about that one
2: have you watched any for all mankind
0: I have not yet. I know that you told me specifically, like that I need to watch this. And it's it's on my list, but I've not gotten to it yet.
2: Well, for all mankind, season three is uh continues the show which was, which began in 1969, alternate universe nineteen sixty nine, which is just like ours, except the Soviet Union landed on the moon first. And the ripple effects of that in season one were, were, were very small. And you kind of had to be like a real history nerd or a NASA nerd to like see the some of the more minor ones, but the butterfly effect of this that expands into season two and three starts seeing bigger leaps and bounds leading to, you know, full, full out cold war espionage and conflict on the moon in season two. And then a race to Mars, which is the heart of season three, which is set in the early nineties uh, against the backdrop of, um, of let's just say Bill Clinton is running against one of the main characters from season two and one for president of the United States. <laughs> um, uh, but I find this show so much fun and it's so well crafted if it was on hbo or anything other than apple tv plus i think people wouldn't be able to shove about it i think that it is just it fire it's always firing on every level the one issue i have with the season is that the characters from season one who are still active players must be in their 60s by now and i don't think the old age makeup is doing them any favors and not because mm. not, not not it's bad makeup is that they all still seem too young for like the joe joe uh, Joel, um uh Joel Kinnaman's uh, lead character we're supposed to accept that he was a decorated Korean War pilot and now he's supposed to be still a, a major NASA player um who's like still in consideration for piloting missions in the early 90s. And Mm. it is just, I, I, I'm kind of really hoping that in season four, they start to really retire the season one characters and start focusing on the young characters been popping up in seasons two and three, because it's it's only tenable for so long before it starts becoming incredibly distracting. But, but the actual storytelling of season three is incredible. And the, without going into any spoilers, the basic crux is that it's a three-way race uh, to Mars between NASA, the Soviet union and a, um, a a third-party tech company that wants to beat both governments there first wow and it and and naturally you're invested in characters on all three sides you're invested in this uh the the emotional stakes of what it means for all three groups to try to get there and of course this this is like it's a backdrop where you know it's recognizably the 90s uh it's recognizably 1992 uh and beyond in this season uh, and like the technology and the fashion and the location and cars all match that. But the butterfly effect is in full swing. We are starting to see things that technologies and ideas and, and basic concepts that wouldn't exist for 15, 20, 25 more years starting to take root in the early nineties. And I know that Ronald B. Moore who runs this show, he's known he's one of the, he's one of the major players in Star Trek in the nineties. He ran outlander, Balsam Galactica. Galactica. Uh, he's been, pl- he's played very coy by the seven year plan for the show. I can only imagine that like the seven year plan must be like, you know, 2030 with, with apps, with, with, with starships or something because of how technology <laughs> ripples are working. But yeah, I, I I'm, I don't know, i do not know. I find this show to be an incredible pleasure to watch. It's just, it's incredibly exciting. The characters all, all work. And if you are a genuine history and technology nerd, if you really want to pay attention, both the, the shifts, big and small, like, uh, the person who was president, uh, in, uh, Instead of Ronald Reagan's second term in in this uh, in this season, uh, which is covered in like in a and each season has a montage of what happened between seasons, uh, and uh, if you are a political history buff, I I, I couldn't stop. I had a, I had a great time giggling about the concept of. <laughs> who was present in the eighties in, in the alternate universe here. So go have fun folks and be, be, feel free to Google references and names and places because you'll often find that the writers have done their homework It's all very smart.
0: So the only question I have, Jacob, and I think I may have asked you this before, um, are these hour long episodes and how many episodes are typically in a season?
2: They are 10 episode seasons and yeah, they're all full hours. Not even like 42 minutes, or 40 minutes are all typically 60 minutes long. So it is a commitment. Uh, But maybe this will tempt you, Ben. Uh, The season two finale um, of of For All Mankind is a top five episode television. It is... um, Wow. I'm not saying season two overall is a top five season. It's excellent. But the the finale, where all the subplots come together in a way that you did not expect... uh, I can't think of a better individual episode TV in recent memory. It's absolutely up there with... Uh, the constant from lost Blackwater from game of thrones, you know, just pick your poison wow. from peak TV and it, it's up there.
0: Okay. All right. Well, yeah, that's a, a resounding recommendation for, uh, for all mankind season three, which is streaming on Apple TV plus right now. Um, how about evil season three, Jacob?
2: Yeah. Uh, evil is another show that I, I love that this and all the new star Trek is the reason why Paramount plus is never going to leave my rotation. Uh, this is a show from Robert Michelle King who did the good wife and the good fight, uh, which I have not watched, but I think I need to because I love evil a great deal. This is a show that's some people have called it um, religious X-Files, but i tend to call uh, the halfway point between law and order and Hannibal uh, in that it follows a, a Catholic church sanctioned team, which includes a Mike Coulter as a priest uh, or rather priest in training for seasons one and two, uh, a, uh, an uh, agnostic psychologist uh, played by Akasha Herbers and a, uh, muslim termed atheist uh tech expert played by asif mandeev uh who are essentially tasked to go uh investigate miracles or possessions or uh, anything that the catholic church deems worthy of you know proving if this is real or fake mm-hmm. and uh, they, they face, face opposition the Michael Emerson plays the lead villain of the series. who's a man who is either a psychopath who is just a genius or he is a genuine follower of Satan who's communicating with demons. And it's never made clear. The beauty of evil is that it never comes down and says, God, demons are real or no, it's all fake. It always hedges its bets. You, you, it literally never lets you know either way. It's always ambiguous. And it means the show allows you to really... Uh, really approach its ambiguity ambiguity in a way that is up to you and season three continues that it's just, it's i i find the, the the weird surreal world of this show which looks and feels you know often straightforward it's, it's not a show that's visually flashy In in fact there's a recent new yorker profile on the kings where we talk about how uh they legitimately see themselves as like workmen as opposed to artists. They really see like creating TV in like the CBS landscape where they came up to be, to be really good training because they really see themselves as thinking about audience first and thinking about not indulging their egos. And that's, and it leads to a show that, you know, has all the satisfaction to me of an ER or a law and order, uh, but also has just gruesome horror laced in and massive unanswered questions and commentary on, 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 Anything that is remotely bugging you or or under your skin these days, evil is kind of there to explore it. Hmm. Uh, and I don't want to spoil season three uh, at all for people, so I won't say any, any details. But I will say that season two had an hour where it compared uh, Amazon's abusive labor uh, to um, Haitian zombie mythology. And (laughs) it was the kind of big swing that I appreciate of a show like this. Uh, I feel like not enough people are are watching Evil, especially since the moved to Paramount Plus. um, Because it just Paramount Plus is. I find it to be a really good service full of things I like watching and evil is keeping me there so I really like this show Ben I, that's why I talked about it for like five minutes
0: honestly. wow I mean so th- the only question that I have for you Jacobs, because I, I have not seen any of evil yet um, is like that ambiguity that you're talking about where like the show never really comes out and, and says you know whether such you know certain things are real or whatever by the time the show gets into its third season does that start to feel like a cop out or is that um, does that still feel like a feature and not a bug it feels like a feature
2: because a a a subplot this season is the world has gotten so bad that nobody feels safe or certain anymore and the show is the show feels unstable and unreadable by design and it ends up it's it it's a very very 2022 show in in that it's it's like if you're it's really trying to deeply unpack um Everything, everything that's happening, it's it's a Mm -hmm. show that's like really unafraid to acknowledge that, hey, things are really bad right now. Uh, Let's think about this. And maybe maybe you hear that and go, okay, not for me, which I would understand. But uh, at the same time, it's a show that has a, the most recent episode has a subplot that confirms, yes, cryptocurrency is a satanic plot. So, you know, it's it's that kind of show.
0: (laughs) Okay. Uh, There's one other season three that you've been catching up with, and that is uh, The Boys on Prime Video. Yes. Uh, have you seen any of the boys yet, Ben? I have not.
2: Uh, the boys is another 2022 show in that it it, feel, it, feel, it very much exudes the vibes of the times in ways that are very angry and very funny. And I really hate the boys comic. The comic book series is based on it. Like, it's absolute low-grade trash. But I think the basic premise of the show uh, is strong. And the show runs with it and replaces all of the juvenile empty BS of the comic with Rich characters and great writing and a strong sense of humor and villains who are real, real POSs who you want to see get taken down. Uh, but also they, but also they oh man, the main villain of the show, uh, Homelander, a Superman analog is one of the most hateable characters in recent fiction. And it's very, very funny that there was a recent outcry where a bunch of extreme right wing fans of the boys discovered that they were the, the topic of the, the show's satire and get very, very upset online about it. Um, but yeah, uh, season three, uh, it's based around a, 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 a storyline that sounds unbearable, but they've pulled it off, which is what if Captain America, the winter soldier became a COVID analog. <laughs>
0: um, I'm trying to wrap my mind around that. Okay. Uh, but
2: basically what if, uh, this universe's version of Captain America, um, was brainwashed by Russians escapes back to the United States decades after being frozen in a lab and it's now wreaking havoc. But the, but the, those in power keep on saying, Oh no, nothing's wrong. You can, you can definitely <laughs> keep going around outside. Uh, don't worry about it. And it, it's, in, it is a big, weird swing. And I, on paper, that sounds unbearable, but in action, it actually ends up being one of the better pieces of pandemic connected art. in that it, I don't know. The boys so effectively uses superheroes as stand in for politicians and celebrities and government and big business. And it uses them all. He uses them to, like, as these like superheroes have transplanted so much of our culture that the, the show acknowledges what if they actually were our culture, what if they were a government, what if they were a way of life. And uh, I, I think the way it uses. Um, <laughs> this character played by Jensen Ackles from Supernatural fame is a COVID a- a- allegory uh, is so much more effective than it should be. And when I realized that they were doing it, I realized it was working. I was kind of actively mad at it. he's like saying this has no right to work. Uh, but yeah, um, I just, I just really love the show. I think that Carl Urban and Jack Quaid have perfect anti-chemistry. They're the two leads, two guys who uh, have every reason to work together, but no reason to like each other. And I, I, I more casting where the chemistry is about how much people, how much you like seeing people not get along because those two have amazing anti-chemistry and I, I I wish more shows were built on that kind of dynamic,
0: man. Yeah. This is one that like is on my list because I've heard so many people um, speak highly of it. And especially like the, the social satire elements that you're talking about. So like, I'm, I'm curious about it, but like, it's just, we're really, I mean, this is truly a, um, a victim of like the peak TV thing for me where I I have like 30 shows that I want to watch ahead of it. But uh, one day I will watch the boys, and I will probably like it based on everything you're saying because that sounds yeah. pretty incredible. So.
2: Are you a fan? Of, I, can't, I can't remember this. Are you a fan of like Verhoeven satire, Robocop, and, and Thrashers oh, Troopers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, this is this is very much in the vein of that. It is just incredibly aggressive, ultra violent, uh, extremely low brow, but also highly intelligent satire. You know how Robocop manages to get away with having like the lowest of low jokes, but in the smartest possible mm-hmm. context, that's what the boys is, really.
0: <laughs> okay. Well speaking of uh I- incredibly dumb humor, um, Beavis and Butthead do the universe, Jacob. Have you seen this yet? <laughs>
2: I haven't, and I've only ever seen their their original 90s movie. I've never seen an episode of the show or anything, so this is all okay. new to me.
0: Same here. Uh, I did not grow up, I grew up like in the Beavis and Butthead era, but I did not watch the the show when it was going on. I was like maybe a little too young or maybe a little too uncool, <laughs> probably the latter, uh, to to watch the show when it was originally airing, I think on MTV back in the day. Um, but I did manage to see Beavis and Butthead do America when that came out in like 96, 97, somewhere around there. Um, and I enjoyed that for what it was. And then I I got a screener for Beavis and Butthead, Do the Universe. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to check this out. And I loved it. I just thought it was hilarious. It's like one of my favorite comedies uh, in recent memory, just because it's so, so stupid. This is a movie that has no, um, no designs on making any sort of statement whatsoever, other than, hey, remember these characters? And like, what if we put them in a 2022 context, and they are completely unchanged and like, uh, totally unwilling to better themselves in any way. It's just about them with their base, um, uh, desires to get laid and that's it. And (laughs) just like, what if we, uh, what if we transplant these characters who were, you know, real idiots in in the beginning, you know, in their original incarnation and just drop them through a, a bizarre convoluted, uh, time travel, um, plot device into our time and have them be completely unchanged and it is just hilarious to see these characters uh you know sort of bounce off of like uh, cultural um signposts and and landmarks and and just like the way that humanity operates now versus the way it operated in 1996 98 or whatever uh it's just it's just so stupid jacob it's so dumb but it's so funny and it's it's 86 minutes it knows exactly what it's doing it gets in gets out it just complete, you know, it just, uh, yeah, it, it completes its mission in, like, the most effective, uh, efficient way possible, and um, it's, like, a rousing success. I, I, I uh, thought it was going to be kind of a, a lark, and it definitely was, but I didn't realize how much I needed that in my life, especially with all of the absolute bullshit that is going on in the world right now um I, I can't recommend this highly enough if you're looking for just like a true escape from the horrors of of life in 2022 uh beavis and butta do the universe um was i i never would have guessed that it was like the movie that i needed to watch right now but um but there it is so i think that's streaming on paramount plus If you want to check that out and yeah, uh, jacob I, I recommend it
2: yeah I, I i may have to check this out because it's weird I was never a Beavis and Butted guy, but I, I really enjoyed most of Mike Judge's work. And I, I think King of the Hill is one of the great animated shows of all time and maybe my favorite depiction of of Texas in, in any medium. <laughs> uh, inc- incredibly powerfully astute in, in its observations about, about the state. So I, I guess part of me have a really snobbish reaction of like, I like smart Mike Judge. I don't like stupid Mike Judge. But it sounds to me like stupid Mike Judge is actually very smart Mike Judge.
0: Yeah, and and it's not like it yeah, it it feels very um self aware in its idiocy. It, it doesn't feel like sometimes um you know movies are like uh, uh overstepping their bounds or anything. This this definitely feels like you know everyone involved in making this knew exactly what they were doing at all times, and it just it works way better than it should. So uh, Beavis and ButtHead, do the universe. Check it out if you want to laugh. Uh, on the, uh, I guess, the the absolute opposite end of the spectrum, I finally also got around to seeing Paths of Glory, the 1957 Stanley Kubrick war movie, Jacob. Um, I, I can't really think of another movie that is uh, quite as as uh, directly in opposition to the um, lowbrow nonsense of Beavis and Butthead. But uh, I assume you've seen this, Jacob, probably. Yes. Yeah, this movie's a masterpiece. Yeah. God, I mean, it, I was kind of, uh, blown away by it. I didn't know anything about it, except Kirk Douglas was the star and it was a war movie. And I was actually really surprised to see that it's basically like a, uh, a, a court movie, like a, um, uh, what is it? Uh, what's the, the term? Uh, a trial, uh, there, there's a, there's a subgenre legal movie? that I, legal yeah, like a, a legal, yeah, yeah. Legal thriller kind of thing. Um, I, I mean, th- there is some incredible uh, war footage that really made me wish that I'd seen this before I saw 1917, because um, it takes place in in World War One, and uh, a lot of the um, the shots. Uh, well, it's weird to say shots for 1917 because the the um, conceit of that movie is that it's all captured in one continuous shot, even though they they broke it up a little bit uh, behind the scenes. But like some of the imagery, some of the um, staging, some of the uh, the blocking in 1917 seems to be coming straight from this. Like, I'm sure this was a um, an influence on Sam Mendez and and Roger Deakins and the rest of the folks who, who made that film. Um, but yeah, this is kind of incredible because it's this really um, it's not, a, it's not an even mixture. It's more of a legal sort of court thriller thing than the war stuff. Like it's not, if, if war movies kind of like make you check out and your eyes glaze over because uh battlefield footage is like too much or too samey or um you know too disconnected uh i I would say don't worry about that in this case because there's not that much war footage and most of the the story is like really it drills down into like the humanity of what is going on here and it involves this um absolute like Shitlord of a a french commander who basically tries to um pass the buck at all times and refuses to take uh uh, responsibility for his decisions that get a lot of people killed and it's about this trial that pops up where several soldiers are essentially chosen at random and um and like put on trial and asked in front of a, a military tribunal like hey why didn't you you know take this uh this hill that that you were commanded to take and the mission was completely stacked against them. There was no way in hell they were ever going to be able to do this, but the, it's, it's all this big show of like, uh, well, we're going to have to like you know go through the proper channels to punish somebody because somebody deserves to be punished. And of course, the the, the commander whose fault it is is just passing the the buck onto these um, you know privates and people below him. And Kirk Douglas plays a a colonel, a commanding officer there who sort of gets wrapped up in this. And then before the war, he was a, um, I think a prosecutor in France, and so he decides to essentially like uh, defend these innocent men whose lives have been put on the line and, and who've been like dragged in front of this military tribunal. And so it, it becomes like a, um, uh, like a, a big, um, uh, F you to like the idea of, um, you know, th- this sort of like, uh, cowardly authoritarianism that, that is running through, uh, the army in this moment. So, um, I don't know, Jacob, it's probably been a while since you've seen this, but what, what do you remember about this movie? What do you like about it? Uh, I remember that
2: it, Spent his first half making it very, very clear uh, how much of World War One was literally literally hell on earth. In the second half, uh, being a, being about people who literally cannot comprehend that, uh, trying to tell people what their experiences were. Yeah, uh, and that's, yeah. That's I think Kubrick does often. He he tends to like you know split his movies into two large chunks sometimes, and the incredibly for lack of a better word gnarly grimy upsetting first half or it's very direct violence very direct chaos very direct um savagery uh and then the back half which is very light and violence but very heavy on a different kind of savagery uh mm-hmm. it, it, it it really it's, it's a film whose second half dares to be as brutal as the first with 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 only a, a small portion of the amount of the violence, yeah. uh, which is very Kubrickian. <laughs> I think it's a kind, of, kind of thing that I, I feel like um, very similar to how the uh, the first half of Eyes Wide Shut is different from different the second half. The first half of 2001 is different from the second half and so on. I feel like uh, there's a point in Kubrick movie we go through the looking glass and the movie starts reacting to itself in a very unique way. I think Paths of Glory may be, may be the first time you really start exploring that.
0: Yeah, man, it's really great stuff. If you've not seen it, I would highly, highly re- recommend it. It's, uh, it, it, it is not like a, um, a typical Hollywood ending. I'll say that. I don't, I don't want to say like exactly what happens in this movie, but, um, yeah, I was, I was sort of, uh, blown away by it on multiple levels. Like just the, um, you know, the, the, uh, effectiveness of that, um, that first half and like the really like putting you in the shoes of these characters and then, uh, just the, like, um the indignant, uh, like, like, yeah, like you're saying sort of like being in, in that courtroom with these characters, a courtroom drama, I guess is the, is the, the subgenre that I was trying to think of earlier, Jake, uh, but being in that courtroom with these characters and, um, you know, just seeing like the, the, uh, the audacity that these, these generals and, and sort of brigadier. Uh, characters have um with where they're playing with these men's lives um in order to just like protect their own reputation in, in like the most selfish way possible it's just it's yeah it's exactly what you said it's it's brutal in a much different way than the like literal brutality of, of what you've seen in the first mo- uh first half so um paths of glory it's great stuff i think i watched it on hbo max if i re- recall correctly so yeah. um
2: also i would check criterion criteria there's, there's a really excellent criterion blu-ray of
0: it so it may be mm. there too Okay. Uh, All right. So let's see. That's all I've been watching. Jacob, what have you been playing?
2: Yeah, I played in Resident Evil Village. I can't remember, Ben, are you a fan of the Resident Evil video games?
0: I'm trying to remember if I've ever actually played any of them. I think I may have played like a couple of them in an arcade at the mall with my friends or something, but not uh, not ever like, you know, sat down at a console. Are you thinking of
2: House of the Dead? Because that's. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes i am sorry about that yep mm-hmm. that's exactly what i'm thinking of and so no i've never played a resident evil game <laughs> uh well
2: resident evil uh, was went through a, a rough patch a little while back where it just it, i did resident evil 4 which was a, a big hit resident evil 5 and 6 a couple other spinoff games were really terrible and really missed the mark of both critically and commercially well, maybe not commercially after double, i bet they sold well but critically and, 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 for, and for fans people did not like them and then resident evil seven took a hard swerve back to horror uh back to, instead of being action games and uh it was a big hit critically uh it sold well and it really refocused the future of resident evil they remade resident evil 2 and 3 uh with more with, with horror focused bent again uh really focusing on the scares and puzzle solving as well as the action and resident Evil 4 is being remade similarly i'm excited for all those and resident Evil 8 is a direct sequel to resident Evil 7 uh, same characters pick up the same storyline uh and it's not as good as Seven. I'm a few years late to it, by the way. Uh, I It came about two years ago, maybe. And it's it's a good game. It's, it's there are stretches of it where it's out and out fantastic. Uh, but I think the front half uh, has all the best stuff, and then kind of starts to peter out, peter out to close to get to the end. Uh, but if you like me, and you've been putting off playing Resident Evil Village. Uh, you know, it's it's worth it. It's it's just be aware that you'll probably start getting finding it a little tedious uh, in the back half as uh, as it starts putting you through some very long levels that aren't as much fun as I think the people designed them thought they would be. Mm. Uh, but there is one section of the game where your character loses all of his guns and you're trapped in the basement with a creature. Uh, I won't say what kind of creature it is <laughs> that, uh, is among the most unsettling horror gameplay I've ever encountered. Uh, uh if you've played the game, it's a house Beneve Beneviento, uh, just a very very bad place a very very bad place to be uh and i played this game in two feverish settings uh until very late at night and oh boy this game uh went scary it's so scary um <sighs> one of my friends who um Liked it more than me. Described it, it says that if Resident Evil Seven is a very focused, contained movie that you're playing through. Resident Evil Eight is like going to a haunted house fair. You know, like a haunted house complex where you, you go buy a ticket. Then there's like four or five haunted houses all separate mm-hmm, with different mm-hmm. themes. Resident Evil Eight is essentially one of those. right? Like each place you go to feels completely different, and some of the houses are more effective than others. Um, but the ones that are effective make Resident Evil Eight worth playing. And yeah, I'm Resident Evil f- franchise is the, in the best place it's been. In game consoles in a long time. I mean, the, the most recent movie was um, was no good, unfortunately. I'm not <laughs> sure how people with the Netflix series, but um, but the Resident Evil games, I, I'll, I'll say, have never been better, better than they are now. The Resident Evil two and three remakes are better than the original original ones. Resident Evil seven is fantastic. Resident Evil eight is very very good. Uh, it's just, I don't. Know, we can talk about nostalgia all we want, but Resident Evil the early '90s Resident Evil, sorry, the early games, the '90s games. They're classics, but they have an age world and they're really not fun to play now. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the new games, I think, are really capturing what we thought they felt like back in the time for our modern era. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so, if you if you if you have a game console, another Resident Evil two and three remakes are frequently on sale, and, and seven as well uh, are frequently on sale for dirt cheap. And you should buy all of them. Eight is still pretty expensive because it's still a new game. But Resident Evil Villages, if you want more Resident Evil after you play those three games, uh, definitely worth your time
0: okay yeah i might have to check that out um okay so real quick a correction uh passive glory is streaming on prime video and paramount plus right now not hbo max so uh there's another reason for uh, to bolster your um paramount plus subscription jacob you could throw on passive glory and revisit that uh, they need to fix your
2: interface it's by far the absolute worst stream service to navigate which is saying a lot because so many of them are bad but the the, the library is there It's it's a it's a fine library (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay, all right. I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode. You can find more about a lot of the stuff that we talked about on today's show at slashfilm.com. Slashfilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, uh, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slash film.com. make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air don't forget to rate and review the show on apple podcasts tell your friends spread the word thanks for listening and we'll talk to you tomorrow
2: this is the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall he knows the show must always go on that's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working the hvac is humming and his facility shines